From New York, this is Democracy Now! With the help of the people, we will find a way out for this country to return to being democratic, peaceful, for us to support parents, families, to build a world that Brazil needs. In a remarkable political comeback, Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva has been elected the new president of Brazil, defeating the far-right Jair Bolsonaro. But Bolsonaro has not yet conceded the race. We'll go to Sao Paulo for the latest and look at Lula's return to the presidency. Then police in California have arrested a man for breaking into House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's home and assaulting her 82-year-old husband with a hammer. The man reportedly yelled, where's Nancy, where's Nancy? We'll speak to Democratic Congressmember Ro Khanna of California as President Biden links the attack on Pelosi to election conspiracy theories spread by Republicans. It's one thing to condemn the violence. But you can't condemn the violence unless you condemn those people who continue to argue the election was not real, that it's being stolen, that all the, all the malarkey that's being put out there to undermine democracy. We'll also speak with Congressmember Khanna about the war in Ukraine and U.S.-Saudi relations. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Brazilians have narrowly elected Luis Inácio Lula da Silva as their new president, marking a stunning comeback for the 77-year-old former union leader who will replace the far-right president, Jair Bolsonaro. Lula will return to the presidency after spending time in prison on corruption charges that were later thrown out. Lula spoke Sunday evening. The majority of Brazilians made it very clear that they want more and not less democracy, that they want more, not less social inclusion, that they want more and not less opportunity for all. They want more and not less respect and understanding among Brazilians. To summarize, they want more freedom, equality, fraternity in our country. President Bolsonaro has yet to concede or make any public remarks in the lead-up to the vote. Bolsonaro and his allies so doubt about the election system, suggesting he may not accept a loss. Supporters of Bolsonaro have, however, acknowledged Lula's win. During his single term, Bolsonaro led a disastrous response to the COVID pandemic, attacked the media and his critics, and hastened the destruction of the Amazon. We'll have more on the Brazilian elections after headlines. South Koreans are observing a week-long national mourning period following Saturday night's crowd crush in Seoul that killed 154 people. The majority of the victims were young women. The crowd surge happened during a Halloween festivities in a narrow alleyway in the popular Itaewon neighborhood known for its nightlife. This is an eyewitness describing the chaotic scene. We came here around 10 p.m., then saw a scene from a movie in front of the hotel over there, like things happening during a war. They were doing CPR here and there, and people were rushing in as nothing was being controlled. It was completely out of control. Despite the throngs of revelers, many noted there was little security or crowd control overseeing the festivities laid blame on the government for failing to prevent such a tragedy. According to local reports, there were as many as 100,000. 
thousand partygoers on Saturday evening. Authorities are investigating the events, and South Korean President Yoon Suk-yeol ordered the government to review on-site safety measures. In Ukraine, Russia launched a barrage of missile strikes aimed at critical infrastructure, including in Kyiv and other major cities. Residents reported power outages, while the mayor of Kyiv said 80 percent of the residents have lost their water supply. On Saturday, Moscow withdrew from a deal that allowed the export of grain from Ukrainian ports after accusing Ukraine of attacking its Black Sea fleet with drones. The U.N. warned the move could further compound global hunger and food prices. President Volodymyr Zelensky called on international actors to hold Russia accountable for ending the agreement. How can Russia be among others in the G20 if it deliberately works to create a famine on several continents? This is nonsense. Russia has no place in the G20. Despite Russia's withdrawal from the deal, 12 grain ships departed Ukrainian ports earlier today. The U.N., Ukraine and Turkey said they would continue with the shipments. One of those shipments is going to Ethiopia. In Somalia, a pair of car bombs exploded at a busy Mogadishu intersection, killing at least 100 people, injuring 300. The twin blasts targeted the education ministry and leveled buildings, sending plumes of smoke and dust into the air. Al-Shabaab, which is linked to al-Qaeda, has claimed responsibility for the attack. One of those killed was Somali journalist Mohammed Isa Hassan, who worked for M24 TV. This is a survivor of the attack. There were four of us in the shop, and one was seriously bleeding and injured. I was also bleeding. It was dark, and there was black smoke everywhere. I managed to come out of the shop and get help. I saw a lot of bodies and some wounded people crying for help. In India, at least 141 people were killed after a bridge collapsed in the western state of Gujarat Sunday. The 19th-century bridge gave way under the weight of pedestrians, plunging hundreds of people into the Machu River below. The colonial-era bridge had been open to the public for just four days after undergoing repairs by a private company. Back in the United States, Nancy Pelosi's husband, Paul Pelosi, is expected to make a full recovery after being attacked with a hammer by an intruder in the family's San Francisco home early Friday. He underwent surgery for a skull fracture and other injuries. The assailant reportedly shouted, where's Nancy? Where's Nancy? during the attack. The House Speaker was in Washington at the time. Police have arrested suspect David DePoppy. The 42-year-old white man has an online history of far-right conspiracy anti-Semitism and hate. On Saturday, Nancy Pelosi spoke out about the attack in a letter to her fellow Congress members saying she and her family are heartbroken and traumatized. Some Democrats have called out Republicans for their silence and for enabling the rise of political violence in recent years. Congress member Ilhan Omar tweeted, quote, a far-right white nationalist tried to assassinate the Speaker of the House and almost killed her husband a year after violent insurrectionists tried to find her and kill her in the Capitol. And the Republican Party's response is to either ignore it or belittle it, Ilhan Omar tweeted. Meanwhile, Twitter's new owner, Elon Musk, tweeted a link to an article with a right-wing conspiracy theory about the attack from a site known for spreading misinformation. The site, the Santa Monica Observer, previously said Hillary Clinton died on September 11, 2001, and was replaced by a body double. Musk posted the article in response to a tweet by Hillary Clinton, but deleted it hours later. 
Here in New York City, climate and housing activists shut down Park Avenue for the fifth straight day Saturday, the 10th anniversary of Hurricane Sandy, to demand banks and major corporations stop funding fossil fuels and that Governor Hochul tax wealthy New Yorkers to enact a Green New Deal. Dozens of activists were arrested over the past week during actions at J.P. Morgan Chase, BlackRock, and in front of BlackRock CEO Stephen Schwartzman's apartment building. The protests were organized by Extinction Rebellion, New York Communities for Change, Sunrise NYC, and other groups. In Iran, protesters have defied threats from the Revolutionary Guard as they continue to take to the streets. On Sunday, security forces unleashed tear gas and gunfire on students at universities across the nation. The ongoing demonstrations come after the head of the Revolutionary Guard, Hossein Salami, issued a stern warning over the weekend. Put aside wickedness. Today is the last day of the riots. Do not come to the streets anymore. This comes as a new report by The Intercept reveals an Iranian government program that allows for the monitoring and manipulation of protesters' cell phones. Meanwhile, over 300 Iranian journalists signed a statement demanding the release of two journalists who are reportedly being held at the notorious Evin prison. Nilufar Hamidi and Elahi Mohammadi are credited with breaking the story of Masa Amini's death and covering her funeral. Iran has accused them of being CIA agents. In Pakistan, a journalist was crushed to death by a vehicle in the convoy of former Prime Minister Imran Khan. Sadaf Naim fell from a truck that was carrying Khan as she tried to reach him for a question. The truck then ran her over. Imran Khan, who was ousted by parliament in April, is making a high-profile journey from Lahore to Islamabad to call on the government to hold a snap election. In Haiti, witnesses say journalist Romelo Vilsant was killed by police fire Sunday after reporters gathered at a police station to demand the release of one of their detained colleagues. Last week, Haiti's largest newspaper, Le Nouvelliste, said it was suspending publication of its print edition due to serious security problems affecting production and distribution. Last week, the paper's reporter, Robertson Alphonse, survived a shooting attack. Lebanon's political crisis deepened this weekend after Michel Aoun vacated the presidential palace Sunday with no successor in place and a crumbling economy. Lebanon is now ruled by a caretaker cabinet and prime minister-designate who's failed to form a government over the past six months. This comes as the country has been reeling from the deadly 2020 blast at the Beirut port and 2019 financial meltdown which pushed over 80 percent of the population into poverty and prompted mass anti-government protests. As one of his final acts as president, Michel Aoun signed on Thursday a U.S.-brokered maritime border deal with Israel. In China, workers have fled a Foxconn factory that assembles iPhones amid fears of lockdowns and other restrictions in Zhengzhou following a COVID outbreak. Online videos show workers jumping a fence outside the Foxconn factory and making their way down highways on foot. China's instituted a strict zero-COVID policy during the pandemic, locking down major cities with migrant workers often getting stuck far from their homes. Hundreds of thousands of workers work at the Foxconn plant. 
In the Democratic Republic of Congo, 11 people were killed in a stampede at a concert by musician Fali Apupa in a Kinshasa stadium. The interior minister blamed the organizers for the death, saying the massive stadium was packed beyond capacity. Back in the United States, New York City will pay $26 million to settle lawsuits on behalf of two men who were exonerated in the 1965 assassination of Malcolm X. Last year, a judge tossed out convictions against Mohammed Aziz and Khalil Islam after finding serious miscarriages of justice. An investigation by the Manhattan DA's office and the Innocence Project found that prosecutors, the FBI and the New York Police Department omitted key evidence around Malcolm X's murder. Khalil Islam died in 2009, but his family filed the suit on his behalf, as he spent two decades in prison before being released on parole. The state of New York will also pay a settlement of $10 million. Ilyasa Shabazz, one of Malcolm X's daughters, spoke to Democracy Now! earlier this year. We want to know who killed our father, and we want to um, make sure that it is properly recorded in history. And the oldest prisoner held at Guantanamo Bay has been released after nearly two decades. 75-year-old Saifullah Paracha returned to his family in Pakistan on Saturday. He was never charged with a crime. Paracha's former lawyer, Shelby Sullivan Bennis, said her client was beloved by fellow prisoners and guards and became the uncle of Guantanamo. There are 35 prisoners still languishing at Guantanamo Bay. 20 of those are eligible for transfer. Three are eligible for review. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report. Coming up, a remarkable political comeback. Former President Luis Inácio Lula da Silva has been re-elected president of Brazil, defeating the far-right president Jair Bolsonaro. We'll go to Brazil for the latest. Stay with us. My Life by Caetano Veloso. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We begin today's show in Brazil, where Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva has defeated Brazil's far-right President Jair Bolsonaro, capping a remarkable political comeback for the former president and union leader. According to the official results, Lula won 50.9 percent of the vote to Bolsonaro's 49.1 percent. 
Lula received more than 60 million votes, the most in Brazilian history. Bolsonaro has yet to concede, sparking fears he may challenge the results. But several prominent Bolsonaro supporters have acknowledged Lula's victory. Lula, who heads the Workers' Party, served as Brazil's president from 2003 to 2010. During his time in office, he helped lift tens of millions of Brazilians out of poverty. But in 2018, as he prepared to run for office again, he was jailed on trumped-up corruption charges, paving the way for the election of Bolsonaro. On Sunday night, Lula addressed supporters in Sao Paulo. I consider myself to be a candidate that has a process of reconstruction in Brazilian politics because they tried to bury me alive. And I am here, and I am here to govern the country from a very different situation. But with the help of the people, we will find a way out for this country to return to being democratic, peaceful, for us to support parents, families, to build the world that Brazil needs. This is not my victory, nor of the Workers' Party, nor of the parties that supported me in the campaign. It's a victory of immense democratic movement that was more than the political parties of individual interests, of ideologies, for democracy to win. On this historic October 30th, the majority of Brazilians made it very clear that they want more and not less democracy, that they want more, not less social inclusion, that they want more and not less opportunity for all. They want more and not less respect and understanding among Brazilians. To summarize, they want more freedom, equality, fraternity in our country. We go now to Sao Paulo, Brazil, where we're joined by two guests. Michael Fox, a freelance journalist, former editor of NACLA, host of the new podcast, Brazil on Fire, the podcast, a joint project of NACLA and the Real News Network. Sabrina Fernandez is a Brazilian sociologist, activist and postdoctoral fellow at Rosa Luxemburg Stiftung. Uh, we welcome you both to Democracy Now! Uh, Sabrina, let's begin with you. Can you talk about the significance of this Lula victory with a record? 60 million votes, the most in history. Hi, Amy. It's really good to be here to share these good news that Lula is back in the presidency of Brazil. It was a really tough second round. We faced uh, fake news, a lot of intervention coming from the Bolsonaro government. But the fact that Lula made this comeback, he was in jail before, he was wrongly persecuted. In fact, the judge that was on his case ended up being minister of Bolsonaro and was with Bolsonaro now supporting him during the election. It means that even though everything was uh, stacked against Lula, there were a lot of people in the streets, a lot of people also engaged online, making sure that we were fighting these narratives and that we were trying to rescue something that's really important in Brazil, which, which is the sense that we need a little bit of democratic normality in the country. The past four years were very, very tough here, not just because of the way that Bolsonaro handled the pandemic, leading to almost uh, 700,000 people killed, but also in the sense that hunger is up, the economy is going quite badly right now. So a lot of people were just hoping that 
we can go back to something that Lula appealed to many times during the election, was talking about Brazil being happy again. The Bolsonaro campaign tried to smear Lula as a dangerous, formerly incarcerated person. Um, they called him a communist. He was still elected to a third term. He had served two terms before Bolsonaro. Um, can you talk about— uh, well, his history, who this new president, the former president, Lula, is, and what this means not only for Brazil, but for um, Latin America and the world. Well, I don't say this likely, but Lula is probably the most skilled, uh, skilled politician we have in Brazil today, both in the left and in the right. Uh, Lula came up as a union leader. He was an important uh, leader fighting for democracy in Brazil when we were under the, the dictatorship as well. He was also uh, part of the, the, he had the task of helping to build the new democratic constitution as well. And he ran for president many times before he actually got elected in 2002. Uh, when he did get elected, he served two mandates. He left uh, his second mandate with very, very high popularity. The country was going well in terms of economic growth. A lot of people were back uh, to their jobs. Inflation was under control. And he had a very important job, for example, expanding access to public education in Brazil, building many universities, and uh, getting especially Black communities to uh, get access to university for the first time because of structural racism in the country. But Lula is very well known for being a very respected leader in the region, not just in Latin America, but also building in terms around South-South cooperation. So a lot of the leaders uh, around the world have already uh, con congratulated Lula uh, for the victory. And Lula is well known for fighting hunger in this country. And because we are under a very... A complicated state of food insecurity in Brazil right now, we have very high hopes that he'll be able to bring some of those policies that worked in the past back again in, uh, once he's in power in January. Let's go back to Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva speaking last night. The defeated President Bolsonaro should have called me to recognize my victory. Up till now, he hasn't called. I don't know if he will or if he will concede. So let's talk about whether Bolsonaro will concede. He hasn't commented yet, though a number of his supporters have actually congratulated Lula on his win. Michael Fox, can you talk about what's happening? There's also protests. That's right. So, I mean, it's very good news that a number of his supporters have come out. They have congratulated Lula. They they say they, they respect democracy and they understand the results of the elections. It is concerning that Bolsonaro has not said anything yet. This is now the longest uh, that a Brazilian uh, the president who has been defeated or a Brazilian candidate that has been defeated has taken to actually recognize the results of the election. That is concerning him of itself. We don't know exactly what the situation or what he's going to say. We do know that he's in uh, he's in Brasilia and people, his, his staunch allies have been arriving. One of his sons arrived this morning, other close allies. We don't know exactly what we're, they're going to say. There are protests happening around the country. We saw this last night on social media. Uh, and this is also concerning. This is largely pertaining to, to truck drivers and people shutting down roads. Still this morning, we have five different states where roads have been shut down around the country uh, from Bolsonaro supporters who say they're not leaving until the military intervenes. Now, remember, this: there was a huge truck driving um, strike back in 2018. The truckers are often very much aligned with the far right and the right. Even back then, I was in the streets and interviewing 
truckers at that time, and they were calling for military intervention even at that time. Um, now, we, of course, we don't know what's going to happen. It, it is unlikely that they actually have support to be able to sustain themselves for very long. They do say that they're organized around the country, but also many of the trucking companies are also oftentimes supporting their own truckers and paying them to kind of stay in the streets and be organized because they back Bolsonaro. So this type of destabilization uh, measure is something that we're going to see what it looks like in the coming days. And we really don't have a good handle on, on, on how uh, intense this is and how widespread and how long it's going to last. Many environmentalists in Brazil said it's critical for Lula to win. This is Marcio Astrini, the executive secretary of the Brazilian Climate Observatory. What Brazilians do now at the polls is much more than a change of president. These are fundamental choices for our country, choices for the future. We will choose whether we stay with democracy or not. We will have to choose if we keep the Amazon alive or if we keep Bolsonaro. It's a choice between the two. It's not going to be possible to have both at the same time. Sabrina Fernandez, if you can talk about Bolsonaro's record and also the Workers' Party and what you expect from them. Yes, uh, Bolsonaro has actually positioned himself in terms of isolation when it comes to climate change and the environmental struggle around the world. He really played along with Trump with climate denialism, but also trying to implement certain uh, certain measures in Brazil around mining in indigenous territory and really downplaying the role of deforestation in the Amazon in terms of an ecocide that was actually promoted in the past four years. Uh, the Workers' Party, on the other hand, usually tends to have a more, more of a developmentalist approach. Uh, it's Environmental record is not absolutely clean, but there is a lot of uh, like we we have made progress before. So, for example, during Lula's first terms, this is when we saw uh, the most decrease in deforestation rates, and with Bolsonaro the highest increase in deforestation rates. And Lula has committed uh, to uh, promoting uh, policies for fighting climate change in the country, and he's also. Uh, very, very much committed to reducing deforestation in the Amazon to the lowest levels possible. And when we look into these two terms, we know that what's at stake here is not just a change for Brazil, but it's also a, a change in, in the planet. And the Workers' Party is well known for working with other democratic forces. Uh, it was a party that was thrown out from government in 2016 during a coup that was orchestrated with the help of the vice presidential um, uh, position, so with Michel Temer under Juma Rousseff. And now Lula, as you could tell from the speech that he, he made yesterday, his victory speech, is willing to work with other forces to make sure that this broad coalition that helped to build this program and this campaign will be able to uh, actually execute some of these things that were part of the program. What about the parliament? What about, rather, the legislature, uh, the Brazilian Congress, the Chamber of Deputies, the Senate, remaining very right-wing? Uh, talk about who also are the other leftist parties and how much power they have and what Lula will be able to accomplish. 
Yes, it's very important to stress that the party with the most seats in Congress right now is, in fact, Bolsonaro's party. Uh, the other party, like with the second uh, highest amount of seats, is also associated with the far right and also part of, the, of Bolsonaro's allied base. But the Workers' Party also made some progress. It got some extra seats. We saw, for example, a much uh, smaller radical left party in Brazil also got new seats. So there's this possibility of trying to negotiate within Congress. Lula never governed before. Actually, the Workers' Party never governed before with Congress uh, completely aligned with them. So uh, they always had to deal with this opposition within Congress. Lula is actually quite skilled uh, in dealing with this. But we do know that the stakes are higher now because Part of this uh, right in Congress is not just the right. It's, it, it is the far right. It is fighting um, under other terms right now, very non-democratic terms. But for example, the fact that our two leader, the, the current president of the Chamber of Deputies in Brazil, uh, conceded that, yes, Lula has won. And Lula, Lula actually made, uh, made a lot of efforts to campaign for Bolsonaro. So knowing that Lula... A knowledge this is important because it puts us in a, a different round now once we get into uh, into the new government in 2023, which is around Lula having to negotiate. And one of the reasons why Lula had this VP candidate, uh, Geraldo Alckmin, who's been a traditional uh, right politician for a really long time, is that Lula thinks that Alckmin will play an important role in trying to mediate these tensions within Congress. Um, Michael Fox, can you talk about the relationship between Bolsonaro and the Supreme Court of Brazil and how this could impact even this election? I mean, the final confirmation of the results will be something like, right, December 19th, and then Lula will assume the presidency at the beginning of January. Right. I mean, the relationship between Bolsonaro and the Supreme Court has been embattled his entire government. I mean, remember that that Bolsonaro, his entire time in power, he's been attacking Congress, attacking the Supreme Court, and he sees the Supreme Court as illegitimate, and he sees them as completely antagonistic to as his government. Have been the main institution in Brazil pushing back on Bolsonaro, and they've done it so many times. I mean, they, they, they've created this, this whole fake news investigation, uh, an investigation into Bolsonaro's um, hate uh, group that that would was that would pushed out hate hate and, and fake news over social media. Uh, they've really attacked that and been able to push that back. They've been investigating the businessmen who were funding that that that, that same uh, that same group that would help to spur things out over social media. So it's kind of in this consistent. Uh, attack or pushback on Bolsonaro. And of course, one of the members of the Supreme Court is currently the head of the Supreme Electoral Court, Alexandre Moraes. And he's been pushing back on fake news throughout this electoral campaign and was very, very harsh on, on the Bolsonaro campaign. Just about a week ago, he changed the measures in order to uh, say that only uh, the, the news that, you know, if any type of fake news, any type of disinformation had to be taken down within two hours from when they said so, uh, and actually blocked conservative outlets from being able to use the terms thief, uh, in order to describe Lula, right, in, around the elections. And so that type of thing has been really, really intense. And of course, that is the main uh, group that certifies the elections. And this is the very group that, of course, Bolsonaro is most up against. And so that is kind of pushing this election at loggerheads at this point. Um, and that is, is part of the tension that we're seeing at this moment.
In 2018, Democracy Now! spoke with Lula when he was running for president. At the time, he was facing a possible prison term on what many believe to be trumped-up corruption charges tied to a sprawling probe known as Operation Car Wash. I was not accused of corruption. I was accused because of a lie in a police investigation a lie in an indictment by the Office of the Attorney General and in the judgment of Judge Moro. Because there is only one evidence of my innocence in this entire trial, which my defense counsel explained in a magisterial manner. Lula served more than 580 days in prison before the charges were thrown out. He mentions Judge Morrow there. Judge Morrow just became um, uh, a new Brazilian senator. He was just elected in the first round. Michael Fox, the significance of all of this. Well, of course, look, Judge Sergio Moro, he was very clearly biased. That we found out from the Supreme Court. We found out from the intercept leaks that showed exactly uh, what was happening on the inside. Prosecutors working together with a, a supposedly independent judge, that's Judge Sergio Moro, in order to convict Lula, in order to attack the Workers' Party. Uh, and so very, very deep. Now, remember that Judge Sergio Moro, after Lula was jailed, then he went on to become Bolsonaro's justice minister. And this kind of this tit for tat, he opened the doors for Bolsonaro to come to power, and then Bolsonaro allowed him to come in. And what was fascinating Fascinating earlier this just this year with this campaign, we've seen, of course, he left uh, Bolsonaro's cabinet uh, in 2020, but they've come back together around the same time. And what was fascinating is we actually saw Moro coaching Bolsonaro during the debates time. He was standing next to him in the debates. So just this this travesty of justice that the very man that put Lula in jail uh, then became the justice minister. And now he's just been elected senator. So very profound. I want to go back to the issue of climate, and Democracy Now! is going to be in Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt, covering the uh, COP27, the U.N. Climate Summit. Um, uh, you wrote a piece for the Sierra Club, uh, where you talked about the indigenous Karapuna, uh, saying they're under attack. If you can talk about um, what you wrote, the Karapuna story being repeated across the Amazon deforestation, the Amazon is at a 16-year high. Amy, look, you know, when we visited the, the Karipuna just three weeks ago, as we're driving into their territory, uh, we are passing areas where trees have already been deforested. They're literally burning on the ground. We went to other places within their territory to understand what that reality was and got there. And literally, the, it, it's still burning. The, 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 fi- the flames are still there. The smoke is still rising days later. While we were on their territory and on our way out, we passed four motorcycles from land invaders who were there surveying the land. And one of the, the areas that they had gone to, they'd actually put up a post that said lote, which meaning parcel. Like they're parceling off their land and they're doing it with disregard, absolute disregard. The, the Karipuna people are one of the tribes that, that the, one of the 10 top tribes that have most had their land deforested, attacked. And this has been the reality under Bolsonaro because he's gutted uh, the indigenous agency, the environmental agency, uh, cut funds and, and, and blocked those agencies from being able to protect uh, the Amazon, protect 
protect the forest and protect indigenous communities. 50% of the deforestation that we've seen over the last four years in the Amazon has been unprotected lands, indigenous lands, conservation areas. So the Caripuna is just one example that has been completely embattled. The way they feel in their community is that they're completely surrounded and they could go out any time and those la uh, land invaders could be there. In fact, when we passed those motorcycles along that road, we stopped very, very quickly. We, we took two or three cell phone pictures and we kept going because the, there was concerns of if you run into these land invaders there, they're usually armed. You never know what could happen. That's the reality. It's been completely embattled. And the possibility to have a Lula government back and remind you that look, Lula has now brought in uh, his former minister of the environment, Marina Silva, who, who split from the PT back a, a, a long years ago. In fact, she ran for the presidency in 2010, 2014. She's now back in alignment with Lula. I spoke with her a, a few weeks ago and she said she had already handed a dossier to Lula about how to get to deforestation zero and that she's excited to work with him going forward. So this is why the Amazon was so important in this election and why it's so important for, 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 for internationally for people to understand what the reality is on the ground. Uh, finally, uh, Sabrina Fernandez, um, voting is mandatory in Brazil. I mean, you look at Brazil compared to the United States, where so much um, percentage-wise, uh, so many fewer people vote in the United States. Um, can you talk about the efforts to make public transit free on Election Day and how this helped voter turnout? Yes, this is a big contradiction, right? It's such a large country uh, for people to vote, depending on the area where you are in Brazil, you actually have to travel uh, many kilometers to find uh, a ballot box. So because of this, it's very important to have free transit. Uh, and we had massive campaign coming from civil society to ensure that many cities of the country would have free transit during the electoral day. We didn't manage to get this nationwide. In fact, Bolsonaro was opposed to this when these initiatives uh, first started um, popping up. So we, we were quite aware that for them of uh, getting people, especially people who use public transit, who are in the lower working classes, um, making sure they would they would get to the vote. Bolsonaro was not interested in that at all. But civil society prevailed in many parts of the country. Yet yesterday we had many reports during the day of the um, uh, traffic policing, the federal traffic police uh, uh, actually surveilling the roads, blocking roads, uh, checking buses, so stalling these buses so that people couldn't get to a polling station. Uh, we had over 500 reports of this yesterday, yet the minister of the Electoral Supreme Court, Alexandre de Moraes, thought that, well, if there was some level of voter suppression, uh, this was uh, prejudicial to both sides. So he normalized things. Yet we know that the um, chief of these uh, traffic police uh, actually um, encouraged people to vote for Bolsonaro just a day before, and that this operation was orchestrated together with the federal government. So Whereas we have uh, civil society, people fighting for the right to vote and to get to the vote, so associate, associating mobility with this, because it is a very big contradiction. You have to, uh, you make people vote, but you don't get people the means to vote. So, so civil society fought for that. And on the other side, you had Bolsonaro using 
the state machinery in every possible way, short of just putting tanks on the road yesterday to uh, get in the way of, of people actually voting. And voting takes place on Sunday. Uh, Sabrina Fernandez, I want to thank you so much for being with us. Brazilian sociologist and activist Michael Fox, freelance journalist, host of the new podcast Brazil on Fire, both speaking to us from Sao Paulo, Brazil. Coming up, California Congressmember Ro Khanna on Nancy Pelosi's husband being attacked at home. We'll also talk with him about the war in Ukraine, U.S.-Saudi relations and the midterm elections. Stay with us. Cuando te hablen de amor y te ofrezcan un sol y un cielo entero si te acuerdas de mí no me menciones porque vas a sentir amor del bueno y si quieren saber de tu pasado es preciso decir una mentira di que vienes de allá A Rare World by La Santa Cecilia. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. A California man's facing charges of attempted homicide, burglary, assault with a deadly weapon, and elder abuse after police say he broke into House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's San Francisco home early Friday morning. Police say the man assaulted Pelosi's husband, Paul Pelosi, with a hammer, fracturing his skull. The assailant, who has been identified as 42-year-old David DePoppy, reportedly yelled, where is Nancy? Where is Nancy? The House Speaker was in Washington at the time. According to some press accounts, the assailant had zip ties and duct tape with him at the time of his arrest. Police say they're still determining a motive for the attack on Paul Pelosi, but numerous outlets report the assailant had posted conspiracy theories online about QAnon, about the 2020 elections. Uh, so many of what he posted was anti-Semitic and filled with hate. The man's former partner described him as mentally ill. In a letter to other lawmakers, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi said she and her family are heartbroken and traumatized. Paul Pelosi was hospitalized after the attack required surgery on his skull. The attack came less than two weeks before the midterm election, sparking new concerns about political violence. Democratic Congressmember Debbie Dingell of Michigan warned, quote, somebody is going to die. President Biden addressed the attack on Paul Pelosi Saturday. I want to make a brief statement about Nancy and Paul Pelosi. You know, uh, talk to them. He seems to be doing a lot better. Looks like he's going to recover fully. 
And uh, but also, I don't know for certain, but it looks like uh, this was intended for Nancy. He kept asking, where's Nancy? Where's Nancy? It's one thing to condemn the violence. But you can't condemn the violence unless you condemn those people who continue to argue the election was not real, that it's being stolen, that all the, all the malarkey that's being put out there to undermine democracy. The talk has to stop. That's the problem. That's the problem. You can't just say, I feel badly about the violence. We condemn it. Condemn what produces the violence. And this talk produces the violence. So that's President Biden. To talk more about the attack on Nancy Pelosi's husband and other issues, we're joined by Rokana, Democratic member of Congress from California, deputy whip of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, and a member of the House Armed Services Committee. So let's begin with this attack, Congressman Khanna. Um, you, the significance of um, him saying, where's Nancy? It's not just asking where she is in the House, but that was the kind of mantra as the insurrectionists um, tore through Congress on January 6th, as they then also shouted, where's Nancy? Uh, the word is now, according to um, both the San Francisco police chief and others, um, that uh, Paul Pelosi had the wherewithal to hit 911 when the attacker was coming, but couldn't say anything. And so the uh, dispatcher just heard the conversation between them and then understood what was going on. If you can talk about this and your concern about this issue of political violence, it wasn't only Congressmember Dingell who's talked about someone's going to die. Republican Senator Susan Collins of Maine also predicted something like this. Well, Amy, first of all, on a personal level, I'm just heartbroken and sickened by what happened. Uh, I've been to the Pelosi's house many times, as many of us have uh, from the Bay Area. For decades, they have opened up their home to so many in the community for so many causes. And to see this happen after their dedication for decades to public service is just outrageous. And the president is right. Yes, we have to condemn the violence, uh, but we have to go beyond that and see what is causing this radicalization. And it's the conspiracy theories and it is the falseness and propaganda out there on media and social media platforms. And this poses a very difficult challenge for the United States. It's easy to say, let's take down speech that is an incitement to violence. That doesn't meet the Brandenburg test. The harder issue is, what do you do with speech uh, that is blatantly false, that is conspiratorial, uh, that may meet the First Amendment test, but still is leading to radicalization? And we have a responsibility in social media companies and media companies, uh, as, a, as well as elected officials, to really be having that hard conversation about speech that's leading to radicalization in this country. Mm -hmm. um, and. The Republicans who are speaking out, I mean, it's been shocking to see the lack of absolute condemnation um, going right on up to Trump. I haven't seen during the show if he has tweeted anything yet directly condemning what took place. But trying to link it to crime and then saying GOP is the party that can deal best with crime. Well, that's just factually not the case. I mean, we'll let the investigation play out. But it seems in this case, uh, when someone is 
coming in and yelling, where is uh, Nancy, that this was uh, targeted uh, to the Pelosi's. And we know from the initial reporting uh, that this person uh, engaged in many of the worst conspiracy theories, including uh, election denialism. So uh, I think that what we need to be responding to is the threat of political violence that is being stoked by conspiracy theories and propaganda uh, and hate speech uh, on social media and in our uh, democracy. And the question for elected officials is, how do we tone down that temperature? How do we uh, stop resorting to that kind of propaganda? And the question for media is, what is their responsibility, both social media and uh, television? Speaking of social media, of course, um, Twitter's new owner—he calls himself the chief twit, of course—is Elon Musk, who tweeted a link to an article um, from a right-wing conspiracy website uh, known for spreading misinformation, like, in fact, Hillary Clinton in 2016, when she was running against Trump, was actually dead, and that there was a body double that was running in her place. He tweeted a conspiracy theory about Paul Pelosi, uh, posted the article in response to Hillary Clinton, and then eventually took it down. But he owns Twitter. What are your concerns about this major social media platform being owned by Elon Musk right now? I'm concerned what rules he's going to have that safeguard democracy and how we're going to do that in a responsible and independent uh, way. Uh, To the extent that he wants to remove bots, fine, that can make the platform better. But the question is, can he create uh, an independent entity uh, that uh, makes these decisions. So he's not making the decisions. Look, I don't love the fact that the Washington Post is owned by uh, Jeff Bezos, but I'll tell you when I submit a op-ed or when there's an article covering me in the Washington Post, I know that that's not uh, Jeff Bezos making those decisions. They have an independent editorial board. They have an independent news department. Uh, that separation, at the very least, needs to exist uh, in Twitter. Um, Congressman Burkana, I also want to ask you about the letter you signed with 29 other members of the Congressional Progressive Caucus urging the Biden administration to pursue direct negotiations with Russia for a ceasefire in Ukraine while continuing to arm the Ukrainian military. The letter stated, the letter stated in part, we urge you to pair the military and economic support the United States has provided to Ukraine with a proactive diplomatic push, redoubling efforts to seek a realistic framework for a ceasefire. This is consistent with your recognition that there's going to have to be a negotiated settlement here and your concern that Vladimir Putin doesn't have a way out right now. And I'm trying to figure out what we do about that. After facing a backlash, Progressive Caucus Chair Pramila Jayapal withdrew the letter a day later. Did you agree with her decision? Do you support the demands of this letter for negotiations? I stand by the letter, Amy. I think the letter is common sense. It's only in the Washington Beltway that uh, diplomacy is somehow considered a scarlet letter. I have supported Ukraine. I will continue to support and stand with Ukraine in terms of the aid and the military they need to defend their sovereignty. I have been very clear that Putin's war is illegal, brutal, unprovoked. But we have to also look at the facts on the ground. Putin is engaged in barbarism. He's uh, striking uh, electricity units in across Ukraine. Uh, He has 300,000 troops there. They can mobilize to 3 million. And there is the risk of nuclear war. 
this president has said responsibly that while we support Ukraine, we need to do everything possible to de-escalate the conflict, to make sure that we aren't escalating to nuclear war, and to engage in negotiated conversations to prevent nuclear war, accidental war, uh, with uh, the Russian counterparts. And the Secretary of Defense actually has done that. This letter simply affirms that while we stand with Ukraine, we also have those diplomatic channels. I didn't see anything, frankly, different than the thoughtful voices that the president uh, has relied on and also things that Admiral Mullen has said, that Joseph Dunford has said, that, frankly, President Obama in his Pod Save America broadcast uh, said. And you have other countries, U.S. allies like France, for example, and Germany, that are continuing to speak uh, with Putin all through this. Um, the significance of the U.S. taking a very strong stand on this. I mean, you have President Biden saying he would speak with Putin about Brittany Griner, which is very important that she should be freed. But what about ending this war? Well, look, I think that the facts on the ground show that— uh Courageously, Ukraine is uh, taking back territory, and we want to stand with them. We want to make sure that uh, we recognize their courage uh, and what they have done. But the question is, uh, how do we both make sure that we don't escalate the conflict? And at the right time, how do we have uh, a just peace in a negotiated settlement that recognizes Ukraine's territorial sovereignty? That, like most wars, is going to require conversation. We can debate when the appropriate time is, and we should make sure uh, that the Ukrainians uh, are uh, consulted and nothing uh, is done that they do not want. But it is uh, in the United States' interest and in the world's interest uh, for the administration, as they are, to be engaged in a diplomatic conversation uh, with the Russians. And that's all the letter said. It was actually affirming, in many ways, uh, what the president has been doing uh, and pushing back against some of the less prudent voices uh, in the Beltway. I wanted to ask you about U.S.-Saudi relations. You recently co-authored legislation with uh, Connecticut Senator Richard Blumenthal calling on the U.S. to stop arms transfers to Saudi in response to the kingdom's decision to cut two million barrels a day of oil production at the OPEC Plus meeting, thereby raising the price of gas to Russia's advantage. And a feast for Politico that you co-authored with Senator Blumenthal, you wrote, simply put, America shouldn't be providing such unlimited control of strategic defense systems to an apparent ally of our greatest enemy, nuclear bomb extortionist Vladimir Putin. You also tweeted, their brutal war in Yemen and their fleecing of American consumers at the pump must have consequences. Um, talk about what you're demanding and how much support you have for this at this point and what is happening in Yemen. Amy, as you know, for almost six years in Congress, uh, I, along with Bernie Sanders, have been working to try to bring the war to Yemen to a close. It's one of the largest humanitarian crises in the world, similar uh, to the barbarism of Putin uh, in Ukraine. It hasn't gotten as much attention. Uh, we had a ceasefire. Uh, now that ceasefire uh, apparently may be falling apart. Fortunately, the United States, thanks to our passing the War Powers Resolution and this president's action, is no longer refueling the Saudi planes uh, that were bombing uh, Yemen. Uh, but we still provide a tremendous amount of defense assistance to uh, Saudi Arabia. That increased 
changed dramatically in the Trump administration. We have more joint defense uh, arrangements with Saudi than most of our allies. And the Saudi planes wouldn't fly if it weren't for U.S. technicians. So both on the account that they have not done enough to lift the blockade, that they still are not abiding uh, by all of the peace agreements to bring the war to an end. And on top of that, they're slapping Americans in the face by cutting oil supplies right when we uh, have a crisis. Senator Blumenthal and I have said, let's at least suspend the weapon sales for a year. I believe after the midterms election, right now the issue is politicized, uh, but after the midterm election, even Republicans uh, will join uh, in this demand to hold the Saudis accountable. Are you concerned about the number of former military officials high up as generals that are working for Saudi Arabia right now as exposed in a major piece? I think it was in The Washington Post. I am. You know, I have legislation actually with a Republican, Mike Gallagher, is a Marine from Wisconsin, saying that high-level government officials, whether they're members of Congress, senators, generals, uh, or uh, executive branch uh, officials, should not be uh, allowed to go work for uh, foreign countries after their public service, whether that is Saudi Arabia or whether that is another country. That seems to me an inherent conflict of interest and something that does not serve our national security. Uh, before we end, I wanted to talk about the midterm elections next week. We're days away. Congressman Khanna, you've been on the campaign trail lending support to Senate candidates Mandela Barnes in Wisconsin. He would be the first black senator to represent Wisconsin. And you have John Fetterman in Pennsylvania, uh, who's taking on the Trump ally um, uh, Mehmet Oz. Uh, let's talk about that one first. Uh, Mehmet Oz, uh, we have a clip of him uh, in the debate with John Fetterman. It's pretty well known, that clip. Um, we're talking about um, John Fetterman when asked—rather, uh, Mehmet Oz, when asked about abortion. This is what he said. I want women, doctors, local uh, political leaders, letting the democracy that's always allowed our nation to thrive to put the best ideas forward so states can decide for themselves. Um, so this should be between a woman, her doctor, and the local elected officials. Congressmember Khanna, what were you saying on the campaign trail? Well, what Dr. Oz said was not a gaffe. That's actually the Republican view. The, uh, the Democrats view reproductive rights as human rights. We view this as a fundamental right for women. The Republicans view this as an issue that politicians should decide. It's a fundamental difference. Uh, I uh, had a great rally with uh, John Fetterman in Pittsburgh. Uh, there was a grit that he's displaying. He's coming back from uh, health adversity, much like many people in Pennsylvania who've been knocked down come back. I just saw a poll this morning in The New York Times that has him up five points. Uh, I think it, it, the momentum still is on his side, but we have to get the turnout out. And uh, we're, the way Pennsylvania goes really could determine the control of the Senate. And what about Wisconsin with Mandela Barnes versus the grocery store magnate Ron Johnson, current senator? You know, Mandela uh, is the American dream. I was very proud to support him early on 
in the primary, uh, and uh, he really is the son of uh, working-class parents who uh, has risen through sheer hard work. He believes in bringing manufacturing back to Wisconsin. He believes in standing up for the working and middle class. Ron Johnson uh, has supported policies that has led to the private equity firms basically bankrupting HuffCore, led to the offshoring of manufacturing jobs, the hollowing out of Wisconsin. It's a clear economic choice. Well, Congressmember Rokanawina, thank you for being with us, Democratic Congressmember from California. Tune in on November 8th for our three-hour election night special. We'll be broadcasting live starting at 9 p.m. Eastern, that's 6 p.m. Pacific. That does it for our show. Check out our job listings at democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks so much for joining us.